of the earliest Christian Latin documents that we have is a court record from North Africa. It's known as the Acts of the Silitan Martyrs. Uh, around 8180, we learn of 12 Christians on trial in Carthage because they wouldn't worship the emperor. A man named Saturninus was governor. At one point, Saturninus says, We are religious, and our religion is simple. We swear by the birth spirit of our Lord the Emperor and offer sacrifice for his health, which you must do as well. A Christian who's kind of speaking for all 12 of them, Sporatus, he responds, If you are prepared to listen to me, I will tell you a mystery of simplicity. Saturninus, if you're going to tell bad things about our sacred rituals, I will not listen to you. Rather, swear by the birth spirit of our Lord, the Emperor. Sporatus, I do not acknowledge the authority of this world. But I rather serve that God whom no one has seen or can see with these eyes. Saturninus, stop being part of this madness. Do you persevere in being a Christian? Sporadus, I am a Christian. Saturninus, do you want some time to consider the matter carefully? Sporadus, In such a just cause, there's no need for careful consideration. Saturninus, have a delay of 30 days and think things over. Sporadus, I am a Christian. The other Christians uttered their agreement with him. The next lines in the court record are Saturninus reading their death sentence to which the Christians respond, we offer thanks to God. Today we are martyrs in heaven. So put yourself in their shoes. Seven brothers, five of them are sisters. Few in number. Little, little, very little power before great rulers. What questions would you wrestle with? Right? If, I, if I'm faithful to Jesus, will I, will I ever kiss my spouse again? If I'm faithful to Jesus, will I laugh with my children again? Will they seize everything that I've worked hard for all these years? Would, would a little compromise be okay to care for my family? To keep things going at church? The persecuted church wrestles with questions like these all the time, feeling small, with little power, and yet we have example of example throughout the ages of saints staying faithful. And we remember them especially on this day of of prayer for the persecuted church. The question I want to ask you though is, how does one keep choosing faithfulness in the face of Tribulation. Jesus' message to the church in Philadelphia, I think, answers that question 
When feeling little power in tribulation, Jesus' person and promises keep us choosing faithfulness. When feeling little power in tribulation, Jesus' person and promises keep us choosing faithfulness. Read with me, starting in verse 7. Here is the Lord's words. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So last Sunday we looked at Jesus' message to the church in Sardis. Jesus had nothing to commend. We find the opposite at Pergamum. Jesus has nothing to condemn. They share this with the church in Smyrna. Both churches have chosen faithfulness over compromise, but this faithfulness has led to persecution. Pressure, great pressure from from society to get them to compromise. Notice how verse 9 Uh, mentions those claiming to be Jews and are not but lie. Well, this same group was persecuting the church in in Smyrna. Uh, Back in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, uh, Jesus knows the slander. So they're slandering these Christians before Rome. He knows the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus speaks the same way of those persecuting the church in Philadelphia. And what he's saying is that being a Jew, being a true child of Abraham means more than just sharing a bloodline. You must share Abraham's faith in Jesus. Okay? But these Jews have joined Satan in Satan's war against the church. Notice also that verse 9 says, you have little power. Socially speaking, Christians were uh, very outnumbered. Religiously speaking, Rome didn't recognize them. After all, I mean, they worshipped a man that Rome hung on a cross. They thought they were ridiculous. Economically speaking, they often didn't have the resources to be influential in, in society. So, in chapter 18, verse 3, John describes how all the merchants of the earth had grown rich, listen to this, from the power, same word he's using here when this church has little power, they have grown rich from the power 
of Babylon's luxurious living. All right, so luxury has this powerful influence on society. And by not bowing to Babylon's or Rome's luxury, these Christians have little power. Not very influential. So we have a church with little power, little resources in great tribulation. But notice their response, verse 8. You have little power and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Jesus says it again in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. So instead of folding under the pressure, they keep Jesus' word. And specifically, they, it says they, they keep his word about patient endurance. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 2, speaking uh, endurance is, is talking about a long-standing obedience in the face of trial. And part of that obedience here includes not denying Jesus' name. So they, uh, unlike the church in Sardis, these, this church, they, they are being very public in identifying with Jesus' name, very public in obeying uh, their Lord over other authorities. Uh, they are identifying with Jesus before others. They were like the Silitan martyrs I read to you about earlier who confessed Jesus' name at great cost to their lives. For these believers, Jesus only has one exhortation in, 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 this, in this letter, and you see it in verse 11. Just one command for them. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So he recognizes how well they're running this race. Right? He, he, he sees how far they have advanced down the racetrack and he's now coming alongside them to cheer them on, to reassure them of his return, to help them persevere to the end. Don't give up. You're almost there. The crown of life awaits you. But you got to ask, like, what's going to keep them holding fast? Uh, what's going to keep them running the race? And I think we need to ask, what's going to keep us running the race? How will you keep running in the midst of tribulation and persecution? And I think the answer is Jesus' person and Jesus' promises. That's the major thrust of this passage, and I, and I want to look at them more carefully. So let's look first at Jesus' person in verse 7. Jesus identifies himself with four phrases, and the first two go together, and the last two go together. Uh, the first one, Jesus is the Holy One, the True One. So these are called titles that were given to God elsewhere in Scripture, especially in Isaiah. Uh, God refers to himself very often uh, in Isaiah as the Holy One. Of course, this is growing out of the vision that Isaiah gets in chapter 6. Uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, cry the seraphim. And there we get a glimpse of what God's holiness entails, right? We, God is, is, that he is high and he is lifted up and he's seated on his throne. And the train of his robe, it says, fills, fills the heavenly temple... And so what we're seeing is that God's holiness is his majestic 
otherness, to use the words of David Welch. God's holiness also includes his moral otherness. How does Isaiah Isaiah respond when he sees God's holiness? Well, he curses himself. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. So God's holiness is illuminating all. It it reveals right from wrong, righteousness from from evil. and, And get this, Jesus takes up that title. Jesus is the one here with majestic otherness and moral otherness. He is identifying himself with the God of Israel. And that's important because when we get to verse 9, Jesus alludes to a promise from the Holy One in Isaiah 60. Only this time, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is also the true one. The true one. In the same way God is true, Revelation says Jesus' testimony is true. His words are always trustworthy. And that's important because Jesus is about to promise this church a whole bunch of good things. So identifying himself as the true one is reassuring the people that that he's going to come through on his promises. It also, when he identifies himself as the true one, this stands in contrast to the liars he calls out in verse 9. They're in cahoots with Satan and the beast who are deceiving all the nations. Jesus, however, is the true one. Now, the next time we find both of these words together is chapter 6, verse 10. I'm going to turn over one page to see, to see this. The martyrs are standing before the altar in heaven and they cry, O sovereign Lord, holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood. And so what we're seeing in chapter 6 is there is great comfort for the church in God being holy and true because he has seized the evil that's being committed against the church. And he's not going to tolerate that evil. He will bring justice for his people because he is holy and true. Jesus also has the key of David. That's the next two phrases we see. It says, the the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The image comes from Isaiah 22, verse 22. Okay, the focus there in Isaiah 22 is... Uh, that Israel is in this dire state. In in particular, David's city, Jerusalem, is in a dire state. Uh, Jerusalem was supposed to represent God's rule, God's kingdom on earth. But it didn't. The people failed to follow God's ways. There There is also a steward named Shevna. And he's rotten. He's the man given charge of Jerusalem. He's supposed to lead the city in God's ways... Instead, he's only concerned for himself and his own glory. And so God thrusts him aside and in Shevna's place he puts Eliakim. Eliakim was going to watch over Jerusalem. Eliakim was going to be like a father to the the people in the city. And and, uh, he was going to be a very dependable man. Verse 22 says, I'm going to place on his shoulder 
the key of the house of David, he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So God entrusts Eliakim with this authority over Jerusalem. Again, God's representative kingdom on earth. Eliakim controlled who entered the city and who didn't. But Isaiah says that by the, by the time you get to the end of chapter 22, Isaiah says not even Eliakim is going to be able to bear up under this weight. Not even Eliakim is going to be able to carry this responsibility as honorable as he is. Overseeing God's city would require a far superior servant. Restoring the people would require a far superior servant. And so in steps Jesus. In steps Jesus to this story, but he's not just another honorable servant in David's house. He is the king himself. His life, death, and resurrection proves that he has the power to restore God's people, to to build God's kingdom. And therefore, God entrusts Jesus with authority over the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. Jesus alone grants access to God's city. God's kingdom. He alone opens and none shall shut. And he alone shuts that door and none shall open. Now for a persecuted church, a church that is shut out of many social settings due to their allegiance to Jesus, what a comfort this title becomes when they consider Jesus' first promise in verse 8. So we're shifting now from Jesus' person to Jesus' promises. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now some have taken this to mean missionary opportunity in the, in the cities. Because Paul uses the same image of, of God opening a door for the, the gospel word to spread in, in a city. He uses it uh, four other places. And Perhaps that's the case, but the context of Isaiah 22 seems to indicate Jesus granting them access to God's city. In Revelation, God's new city is where God's people experience the fullness of all the blessings promised to David. And you remember when we went through the book of Acts, what those blessings include, right? The blessings included a forever king sitting on a forever throne, bringing a forever kingdom Blessing all nations with a new world order in a new creation under the glory of God's peace. Even more, God dwells in this city. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation. John, what does he see? A door standing open. He sees an open door into heaven and it's through that door of God's revelation that John receives access to God's throne and the worship of the Lamb. So consider how this promise would land on a church that's experiencing persecution. When family members have have excluded them, when friends have, have shut them out, when the world has slammed shut every door that would otherwise help them and give them success, Jesus sets before them an open door into God's city. An open door into God's presence that no one can shut. They may have little power, but they have access to the king with all power. 
They may not have many riches on earth, but they are rich in heaven because Jesus has opened a door to their city, to his city. A second promise is vindication before their enemies. Vindication before their enemies. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So this is coming from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. Israel is suffering in exile under foreign oppressors. These pagan nations uh, afflicted them and mocked them and persecuted them. But God promised a day when these pagan persecutors would prostrate themselves before the, before the restored Israel. Isaiah says, this is Isaiah 60 verse 14, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So this is the hope of the Jews. Every Jew's going, growing up hearing this promise, right? But notice in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, the nations won't be honoring these particular Jews. Rather, these particular Jews will bow at the feet of the church, a church that included lots of Gentile nations, by the way. And so the irony is deliberate. By persecuting Christians, these Jews have joined the pagan nations. The true recipients of God's promise in Isaiah 60 are those who keep Jesus' word, no matter what background they, they come from, Jew or Gentile. So the true Jews, the true Israel, are those who belong to the Lamb. Those who belong to Jesus. God will vindicate them. He will vindicate the church. And our persecutors will know that Jesus loved us. Isn't that amazing? He loved us. This, this Jesus with majestic otherness and moral otherness. This Jesus loves his people. Chapter 1 verse 5 says that he loved us by freeing us from our sins by his blood and making us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. Jesus does not love everybody in this special way. He loves his church. He loves his bride. He will not tolerate people persecuting them. He will vindicate his people. Now, we'll have to wait until chapter 21 to learn how the fullness of that vindication comes with the new Jerusalem. John will return to Isaiah 60 and develop more fully what, what's going on there. But it's enough for now, for, uh, for now to recognize that it will come and we can rest assured in Jesus' love that it will come. A third promise he gives us. Protection in tribulation. Protection in tribulation. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. Okay, you're going to see this come up a lot of times in Revelation, and it doesn't mean 
just anybody and everybody on earth. Those who dwell on earth, here, here's a glimpse of what they're like. In chapter 6, they murder Christians. In chapter 11, they rejoice at the death of God's prophets. In chapter 13, they worship the beast. In chapter 17, they get drunk with sexual immorality. In chapter 8, an angel pronounces woes on them. It's not just anybody and everybody. This, these are God's enemies. So when you, when you see those who dwell on the earth in Revelation, he's talking about God's enemies. Okay? An hour of trial is coming on the whole world to try God's enemies, to test them, to expose their allegiance to the beast. Okay? And, and uh, within John's visionary experience, this happens when you read the, the seals and the, and the trumpets and, and the bowls. Plague after plague after plague is falling on God's enemies. And still they worship their idols. Still they don't repent and give God glory. In other words, it's exposing how enslaved they are to their sins and to Satan and his kingdom. So when these judgments fall on the world, Christ will protect and preserve his people. He will keep them from that Hour. Now, some have said that this means he's going to rapture the church to heaven. I don't agree with that. It's better to see this as a protection through tribulation. Okay, this same kind of language appears in John 17, 15 in Jesus' prayer when he says, Father, don't take them out of the world. Keep them from the evil one. It's a protection through tribulation. They won't experience his wrathful plagues, they will experience persecution, they will experience hardship, they will experience hard, uh, hard trials, but they will not be the objects of God's wrath. They will be the objects of his protection and nourishment. You see this uh, when God seals the church before these things start happening in chapter 7, verse 3. Or with God nourishing the church in chapter 12, verse 6, as they go through this wilderness-like tribulation. All right? So that's what we'll get to eventually. All right, promise number four. Permanence in God's presence. Permanence in God's presence. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God... And never shall he go out of it. That's, there's a period, at least in the ESV. I don't think there should be. There's not one in, in Greek. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And never shall he go out of it. He's, these two ideas are connected. And we'll see why in a minute. All throughout Scripture, whether you start with Eden. Think of the Garden of Eden. Or you step forward to the tabernacle, or step forward a little further to Solomon's temple, step forward a little further to Jesus and the church, go farthest to the New Jerusalem. Any time you, you trace this temple theme, uh, one thing remains central, and that is God's presence. Okay? Temple is all about 
dwelling in God's presence. Whether you're in the garden or the New Jerusalem or everywhere in between, it's all about dwelling in God's presence. And the Psalms even, even borrow from, from this and, and they, and they kind of shape the people's longings, right? Uh, Psalm 27, 4, for example. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. These are the longings of God's people, right? Are these your longings? Right? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Well, for Jesus to say that you're going to be, a, you're going to be in God's temple, it, He means that these longings to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, they're going to be satisfied fully. But then he adds this idea of pillar, of a, of a pillar here. And, when, and, and you get examples of this. Um, there are some uh, pillars mentioned in the tabernacle, but you get, you get these pillars in Solomon's temple, uh, especially the two that he names, Boaz and Jochen, right? And, and, and they're huge, and, and they're massive, and they're expensive, and, and, uh, and they're also beautiful, ornately designed and but what happens um, when Israel goes into exile 2 Kings 25 verse 13 listen to this the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord the Chaldeans came and they broke them in pieces and they carried them out to Babylon So enemies came in, they tore down the pillars, enemies carried them out of God's house. Here's what I think is going on. For Jesus to say that you'll be a pillar in the temple of my God and never shall you go out means not only that God's temple is better and more permanent, but also no enemy is going to threaten you. No enemy is going to remove you from God's presence. You might get drug out in the streets and carried away from your brothers and the sisters in the faith. On earth, it might feel like you are losing everything. But when you're doing it for Jesus' sake, He says here you're going to gain everything. He will make you a pillar in the temple of His God. And you will behold the Lord's beauty forever, forever. And you will be beautiful forever. That's what's going on here. No enemy will ever remove you from there. Finally, promise number five here says, uh, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. So you get citizenship in the new Jerusalem. Okay, in Revelation, you either you either bear the name of the beast or you bear the name of the of God and the Lamb. Okay, having God's name not only means that you belong to him, but that he has also set you apart for his service, for his for his worship in the in the Old Testament, the priests, right, they had, a, they had the Lord's name inscribed on, 
uh, a golden plate on their turban, right? And it, and holy to the Lord. It's a cross there. In Revelation, the Lamb creates a new priesthood. A new, a new priesthood, a kingdom of priests. So Christians in Revelation, like in chapter 14, and you'll see them carrying God's name on their foreheads. It's, it's another, it's language of priesthood. They, they will have the, the God's name and the Lamb's name written on their foreheads. They also, it also says that they bear the name of God's city, the new Jerusalem. Uh, remember from Isaiah 60, verse 14, which, that I read earlier, uh, remember what the nations must one day acknowledge about God's people. It says that they shall call you the city of the Lord. It's going to be their name. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, Isaiah 62 continues the same idea. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give, and that name is, my delight is in her. Remember, it's the the language of, these terms of endearment that a husband would have for his bride. My delight is in her. And then at the end of Isaiah 62, he says, you shall be called a city not forsaken. Another name there. So So you will bear this city's name. And when you bear this city's name, you get to participate in all of its blessings. God's delight will be in you. You will know the fullness of this city's inheritance. You will taste of its fruit. You will experience its life and its feasts and its joys. Zechariah speaks of of children laughing in the streets and playing in the streets without fear. All the rights and privileges to live there will be yours. These are the good promises for those who overcome. And Jesus, because He is holy and true, and because He has the key of David, He has both the integrity and the power to make these promises real. Real for us. So going back to the Silitan martyrs, how did they say, no, we will not sacrifice to your emperor? When threatened with the sword, what gave them the strength to say, no, we're standing with Jesus? Well, they held fast because they knew Jesus is holy and true. They knew Jesus has the key of David. They knew that in union with Jesus, they have access to God's city. They have vindication before their enemies. They have protection in tribulation. They have permanence in God's presence. They have citizenship in the new Jerusalem. They knew these things. So they said, we're with Jesus. We're not giving him up. So Jesus' person and his promises fueled their endurance. And it has fueled the endurance of countless saints throughout the ages. When feeling little power in tribulation, Jesus' person and promises will keep you choosing faithfulness as well. And so the first thing I want us to take home is is this. Treasure Jesus' person and promises before persecution comes. Treasure Jesus' person and promises before persecution comes. Like Wormbrand said, it's too late to start thinking about these things once the communists throw you in prison. He grew up in Romania, of course. 
treasure Jesus' person and promises before persecution comes. As a pastor, I get the privilege of recommending lots of books to people. And uh, on lots of different topics, hey, you know a good book on this? And I get to recommend it to them. But do you know which books impact people's lives the most? Do you know which books actually keep Christians persevering the most? It's not the ones on financial management and lust and politics and counseling and marriage. It's the books that, be, that help them behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus. It's books like Packers, Knowing God, and Sproul's, Holiness of God, and Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, and McLeod's, The Person of Christ. It's books that help them grasp the glory of Christ as he stands forth in the scriptures. When beholding Jesus' glory, they find their hearts so full that they never want to let go of him. They find their hearts so full that they no longer want to trade him for sin. They find their hearts so full that they find themselves strengthened and able to keep running the race because Jesus is awesome. Right? This is is how it works. And the same is true for those who treasure Jesus' promises. Cancer hits and they're quoting Isaiah 43. That God's righteous right arm is upholding them. Trials come and they're quoting Hebrews 13, that I will never leave you or forsake you. And that promise upholds their spirit when their children are walking away from the faith. The same will be true when when you face tribulation. But these things have to be part of us now. You've got to hide them in your... What's the, uh, the image from Pilgrim's Progress? You've got to hide them in your chest pocket. Right? So that when you're in the dungeon, you can pull it out and unlock the gate. It's freedom, right? You've got to hide these things in your heart. They must be dear to your heart before persecution comes. So I just want to ask, are you there? Are you treasuring these truths about Jesus? Tribulation is not going to get easier, folks. And we'll discover that in Revelation. As long as darkness hates the light of Jesus, persecution is not going to stop. So will you be ready to stand with Jesus when challenged and mocked by the world? Prepare yourself for suffering. By treasuring Jesus' person and promises now. And then a second takeaway. Focus on keeping Jesus' word no matter how small you feel. Focus on keeping Jesus' word. I mean, when you... The world looks big, guys. And it is big. It looks big and powerful when you compare it to the church. The world and its resources and its influencers and its powers can make, a, can make you feel small and insignificant and weak. You read your news feed and you're, and you're going, how could anything I do possibly make a difference here? What, what good are my little attempts with, with my neighbor? You hear stories of, of authorities treating Christians however they want 
and you wonder, what can I possibly do in the face of that power? Smaller churches often lack resources like other organizations have, and they can start wondering, what could we possibly do? We should just close up shop. And that's when these these temptations start to enter, right? Maybe if we become more hip and more relevant to the culture, then we'll we'll be successful. Maybe if if we just had more money and then pumped a whole lot of money into this and had some better facilities, maybe then... Maybe then we'll, we'll have this great impact. Maybe we can baptize some secular methods to win friends and influence people. Maybe the way to make a difference is through politics. We're going to make sure our person stays in power and keeps staying in power. And that's how we're going to do this. Maybe if we just had more numbers. Somehow, let's get numbers. Lots of people, and then we can be successful. And none of these are the ways that the Christians overcome. Here's the greatest thing you can do. Keep Jesus' word, no matter where he has placed you. You may be small and insignificant in the world... You may have little power when, you, when you're comparing yourself to others. You as an individual might have little strength as your body is getting older and older. But listen to this. When you keep Jesus' word, you are the true victors. When you keep Jesus' word, you overcome Satan and the beast. In the eyes of your persecutors, you're going to look small and you're going to look insignificant. But in the eyes of Jesus, you're going to be victorious. You will win, not with partnering with with the world politically, morally, financially, but by keeping Jesus' word. So just day by day, make that your focus. No matter where where you are, no matter how small you feel, just make that one thing your focus. You know, sitting there taking it in from, from the word in the morning, and you read one sentence, and you're like, I can obey Jesus. I can obey Jesus at home. I can obey Jesus at my workplace. I can, I can keep this word. And when I keep this word, I overcome. I'm, a vic- I'm, I'm victorious with Christ. That's how Jesus overcomes the world through his people. And then finally, I want to pray these promises for the persecuted church. Pray these promises for the persecuted church. The Lord Jesus has churches like Philadelphia scattered throughout the world. They are churches who in the world's eyes have little power, little resources, and they need our support in prayer. And so as Gary mentioned earlier, we're going to do that today. And we're going to break up into groups of four or five with the people around you. Um, and you can open up your worship guide to if you whatever last song we sang, one page after that, you're going to see a list of things that you can pray with some scripture verses in it for the persecuted church. Um, so when you get together in your groups, here in a second, use that as a guideline. And then remember the things we've talked about today Pray these promises for them that they will hold fast 
and gain the crown. And then we're going to do this for about 10 minutes, and then Ben's going to come close and lead us in the Lord's Supper. So go ahead, break up now in the groups of four or five, and start praying.